episode 50, Joe. We have made it a full year of the Glass of Joe podcast. Thanks to all the guests we've had along the way. It's been a lot of fun. We're hoping to get somebody this week, but, you know, everybody's busy. You got NHL, NBA playoffs, golf just had a major, baseball is in swing. Yeah, and that just goes to the evolution of what this show has been for us, right? Like, we started it when there was nothing to do during the height of COVID-19. And I feel like when we started it, it was it – was, oh, pretty much an interview show right like we didn't really have any current events to talk about we had a captive audience of uh of possible guests where they couldn't say no to us because we knew they had nothing to do uh so that's how it started right and then we start getting back into the actual schedule and and it transitioned from kind of being that guest driven show to what we had always envisioned it would be which is just us two giving our takes as an out an outlet for us to spew whatever it is that we want to spew in a given week um and you know what <laughs> honestly it's fitting that all the people that we tried to get this week for for episode 50 uh were busy because that is just the perfect bookend to how this all started we started it with guests we are now here 50 episodes later where we're, we're shooting for those guests every week still because it's awesome to talk to them but uh we've, we've developed this into something where we can give our idiotic takes on a weekly basis and if we have a guest great to share their takes with us as well but um it's been a ride pj it's 50 episodes, one year. It's been something. <laughs> 50 episodes, Joe. I'm not sure if I can go 51. I think our friendship That's is it. just, it's reached, it's, <laughs> I think it's coming to an end. No, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, look, for a week to not have a guest, this is a pretty good one because there's a lot to talk about and some record-breaking stuff that happened this past weekend. When we were talking about the PGA Championship, we were talking about Kiwa Island, we really didn't give our picks because that golf course you can make big numbers so quickly yeah, and really we, did it. we gave we talked about that the day of round two and we still didn't bother giving picks even though we had a day in the back pocket because there's just no way of knowing literally which way the wind is going to blow like that's the old cliche well you know what i'll take i'll go wherever the wind blows me well that's literally it at kiwa you don't know that was you. that was the first golf tournament where i truly understood how impactful wind can be on a golf course they talk about it on another golf courses, like hitting into the wind or you got the wind behind you or it's coming left to right, but it really doesn't make a difference. But then when you see how differently holes play, when the wind changes, it truly is incredible. That course is just so brilliantly designed by Pete Dye. And uh, I, I still cannot believe sitting here on Thursday, May 27th that Phil won it. I really can't. <laughs> it's he, crazy. If the fact that, I, I don't know if you remember, but the first time we had Steve Sands on, you actually asked him, you're like, everybody's talked about the Tiger major and him winning the Masters, but do you ever think Phil will win it again? And Steve was like, no, he's 50. Like, it just won't happen. And it, if you thought Phil would have won it, his only chance you would have thought would have been Augusta just because of his experience and his history there. Never did you think on a course as hard as Kiowa on, at a PGA championship not only did he win, but he was the overnight leader on Friday, That's the leader on Saturday, and uh, That's to hold off part of it. The, because yeah. how many times in Phil's career have we seen him have a lead after a day or after two days, and you know he just starts taking risks because he feels it and he's feeling himself too much, and all of a sudden he's left, he's right, and he's never center, and yeah. all of a sudden a five shot lead is now a three stroke deficit because he gets almost too confident because he sees his name atop the leaderboard, and. To a point, he did that. Like, he came back to the pack, but then he started to refocus and just went from there. I mean, it's remarkable. I think, I think when, when we talked about that with Sanzi, he, 
he said like, look, I'm around that same age. And I can tell you, it ain't easy walking a golf course at that age. Um, But the fact that, you know, he he started talking about, you know, all the stuff he does, he like fasts for 36 hours each week to like reset his body, all these things that he's doing to take care. Um, One thing that I don't think got talked about enough though, in the past week, the fact that he's done the old man tour and he performed very well on that old man tour, I think that gave him some of his swagger and some of his confidence back instead of, you know, at, at the end of each week, seeing yourself like 30th and 40th and in the regular tour struggling a little bit, he went there, he just started bombing things, just playing the way Phil used to play, got to see his name atop a couple of leaderboards, win a couple of events that I think got his confidence back up. And we've seen him, I mean, he won this one, of course, but we've seen him in contention and, and near the top of the leaderboard a couple times prior as well. I think that was huge for him getting on that tour and, and, you know, just kind of getting that whole Phil mojo back. What's awesome is when you win a major, you get to play that major for life. As if you want to play it, you can play it. And obviously the only major that Phil hasn't won is the U.S. Open. So prior to last week, he actually had to get a special exemption because he hadn't had enough FedEx Cup points and he's never won the U.S. Open and he's 50 years old. And well, now he won the PGA. So he gets five more years exempt into the uh, U.S. Open, which... (laughs) which is pretty cool. The guy he was holding off, though, was Brooks Kepka, who made a lot of news this weekend with the video that surfaced uh, with Bryson DeChambeau, and I'm sure everybody by now has seen it. What's crazy is that, you know, people that don't really follow golf just feel like that all of a sudden Brooks hates Bryson, He's and that hated. just is not true at all. <laughs> He's hated him for a couple of years now, but I love the rivalry for golf personally. Bryce. I was just definitely- gonna ask, I was just gonna take it there and ask you, like right now I feel like there's two schools of thought. There's the old school where it's like, oh, it's you know what, that's not part of the game, it's a gentleman's sport. And then there's a new school where it's like, all right, oh, we need something to liven it. this up. Yeah. I love it. Uh, every villain, every sport needs a villain. And Bryson's kind of an easy target. And look, on the PGA tour, I mean, give or take every week with all the different guys playing in all the fields there are 200 250 guys you're not going to like every single one of them and brooks is kind of like uh he's kind of like the tony stark of the pga he's got that like he's uh he's cocky and he's a little bit of a douche but people love him and uh he tells you what's on his mind the fact that now bryson is playing in the match and uh the twitter dispute that they all had I just think I think it's great for the game because Brooks is a person that a lot of people like just how blunt he is and he tells you what's on his mind and people love Bryson because of the power and just how incredible he is to watch but he can strike you the wrong way so personally I I think it's great and there's so much young talent in the game that I think uh you know now that there's kind of a villain that people are targeting with Bryson. I think it's good. And the other thing too here to factor in and 50th episode, nice spot to name drop past guests. We had Mike Greenberg on and I was listening to his show today and they were talking about the, the Bryson Brooks whole ordeal. And one point that he made that was so great. It's one thing to have a rivalry where guys just don't like each other for whatever reason, but there's something poetic about this where it's like, you know, like a, like an old storybook tale of two foes where they don't, not only do they not just like each other, but they're polar opposites. Mm. Bryson DeChambeau. And part of the reason that Brooks doesn't like him is because he takes forever on the course. He is this perfectionist. He's the scientist as, as it's been said time and again, 
Um, he takes his time. He has to perfect it. He, he thinks he beat the game by like, uh, you know, engineering this whole new way to play. And he, he's perfectionist and all this and that. And then on the flip side of that, Brooks is just kind of like the everyman in the equation. Like he's just a dude who's going to show up. He doesn't take practice rounds or, or he tries not to. He always says that. Um, he comes out there. He's going to grip it. He's going to rip it. He's going to play at, at the fastest pace you could possibly play. So they're two total opposites in personalities. They're two total yeah. opposites in their style of play. So it's not just two guys who don't like each other. They are perfect foils for each other where they are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, like, you know, good and evil sort of thing. Now, which side do you think is good and which side do you think is evil depends on which guy you side with there. But the fact that they are that different and it just makes for a perfect rivalry. And I can't wait. I really hope in the near future, we have the two of them in a final pairing at a major. And it's not like, you know, some rivalries you see in sports where like one side beats up on the other, something like that. These are two dudes who are always going to be in contention at the majors. You imagine for the next four to six years before maybe age and health starts to creep up on them. Although unfortunately health has crept up on Brooks already a couple of times. Hopefully he gets back on track, but as long as they're on track and healthy, these guys might a couple of times be paired together at majors on Sunday. And I, I mean, just like JT and Spieth, like those are Sunday pairings we haven't seen yet at majors, and I want to see them very. Yeah, badly. well, very, that's very that's why you know everybody wants to see them on a Thursday Friday pairing at the U.S. Open, and I'm like, don't do that. Let them just try and work it out and hope they're at the top of the leaderboard on a Saturday or Sunday because that would make it. it. It's got to be organic with everything. Can't force it. What nobody's talking about though, which I think would be awesome, is for the Ryder Cup. Obviously, the team captain would never pair them together. But on Sunday, when they do the singles and they do the match golf head-to-head against Europe, uh, if, you know, Bryson's like the last guy and USA needs him to win and they're zooming in on Brooks like he's having to root <laughs> for Bryson to sink the putt, I think that would be that You know what would be even fun. better is if he misses the putt and everybody around him is like, oh, dejected. <laughs> and you see Brooks like, like that, you know, that, uh, that, that Russell Westbrook meme where he like turns to the side on the bench and like eats something. Yeah. You see him turn to the side and give like a little fist pump. Like he's happy that they lost because Bryson is the one who lost it. I would love something like that. That would be fun. I'm telling you, the Ryder Cup though is where it could really get interesting with those. And two that guys. whole Twitter beef. I mean, Tom Brady, the GOAT. Of football he needs to retire becoming the goat of twitter so because, he can just be on twitter <laughs> full time i mean there's the, the memes he made i couldn't believe he went there when he uh Same. especially the one where uh he rogers he, with aaron rogers yes. and, and where bryson in the background was uh was like going for a fourth down like that like that was I, I cannot believe he went there that was i mean that's just i hope tom brady is the one actually running his twitter account people like surmise that maybe it's not him and it's someone who's doing some wonders right now for Tom Brady's image I genuinely hope it is Tom Brady with the phone at his thumbs doing all of this I think it's Tom it'd be awesome I think it's Tom and I think Tom's is trying to push Aaron out of Green Bay to an AFC team I think he wants (laughs) Aaron to be like god this Brady guy is such a douche he beats me (laughs) now he's rubbing it in and Aaron's like you know what I'm out of Green Bay forget it but Brady on Twitter is uh it's tough because you just want to hate the guy so bad, but off the field, he he's very funny. Yeah. His Twitter is pretty good. The image he's created for himself off the field now. Um, I mean, like think back to when he won the Super Bowl and he was drunk that day 
and he like tweeted in, in alternating capitals and lowercase. He was like avocado tequila like that. I mean, he was just he's gold on Twitter. It's, it's fantastic. And for, for as, as sick as we may be of seeing him lift the Lombardi, uh, I really am looking forward to the, whatever the next chapter of his career brings. I don't know if he'll want to get into TV. I don't know if he'll want to get into coaching. I don't know if he'll want to ride off into the sunset on that estate he has in Montana, which is where they're going to be playing the match. Uh, whatever he does, I'm looking forward to it. Um, and now the match, um, you know what? We, it's, too, it's way too early to start talking about the specifics of it. Uh, but I'm curious to see what Rogers' game looks like because, I mean, we, Peyton Manning, we he's knew he played was in the, uh, He's played out in Lake Tahoe a couple times in that tournament, and he's held his own a little bit. What okay. I want to ask you, though, and it's tough on the spot to think of it, but if you could have, like, your dream golf and athlete pairing, who do you think it would mm. be? All right. So it might be a cop out, but like, I, I feel like Phil and Tiger are the perfect two for it. Um, and obviously Tiger's health is the important thing right now. And he's, he's working his way back. It was nice to see him have that picture with the, with the kid who had cancer the other day and just out at a soccer game and met him and talked to him. Um, so hopefully, you know, he gets healthy. And, and even if he doesn't ever return to form, um, you know, back on the PGA tour, as he and Phil age, it'd be fun to see them continue to do this because personality wise, like those two guys are great. I mean, them being mic'd up the first time we had the match was phenomenal. So those are the two and it's, it's not groundbreaking. We've seen it already. Um, try to think like of the other guys. I mean, Kepka does seem to have like a kind of standoffish personality. So I don't know how he would look in that. Uh, Bryson. I, I mean, his personality is okay. I guess like I'm curious to see what he sounds like when he's mic'd up in that. But Phil and Tiger are definitely the two. Um, as far as the athlete is concerned, well, not that golfers aren't athletes, but as far as a non-golfer to join, that's a good one. On the spot, it's tough. I mean, I would probably like to see more so personality than greatest. Like, we saw Chuck in it. I'd love to see Shaq. Like, give me <laughs> Shaq mic'd up for 18 holes, just joking around. Uh, like, that would probably be awesome. Um you know what as I'm, I'm i'm working through it the wheels are turning give me Shaq and gronk give me those two guys as the athletes gronk would be a good tiger one. as the golfers those four personalities mic'd up for 18 holes in a couple hours that would be gold comedically and for entertainment value that would be gold see i'm glad you said gronk because i was going to go tight end i'd love to see travis kelsey he also played oh that's Tahoe, a good one and he's a great personality and I think he would mesh well with Speed because Speed loves talking to himself okay. on the course. And you mix that with Kelsey's enthusiasm, and I just think it would be nonstop entertainment. And I'll but I'm with you. You got to go with the with the athlete. Even somebody, and I don't know what their golf games are like. And they oh, probably, I don't care what the golf games like. They'll figure out a way. I mean, Charles Barkley is, I mean, publicly one of the worst golfers, one of the worst golf swings we've ever seen. And look what he did when he, he participated in the event. Charles like, is getting a lot better though, golf, like, and it's getting it scary. You, like, they'll, <laughs> they'll figure it out and be respectable for TV. Like, they, there's a workaround for that. For me, it's all about the personality. I don't care what the golf game looks like. But then again, like, if they have a good golf game, that just makes it all the more entertaining. Like, if you told me that it would be Steph Curry and Tony Romo, who are two dudes who people have hypothesized if they would have committed their entire lives to golf instead of football and basketball could they have made the tour because look how much look how talented they are just playing in their spare time right. so if you wanted to give me say Spieth and Fowler 
uh, with, with Steph and Romo, where like the golf is actually also going to be really good. That'd be entertaining. So there's, there's many ways you can go with it. It's a good question, but yeah, I there think, is, well, I think one Jack and Gronk for 18 holes would be gold. Shaq is a great call. Gronk is too. One athlete you probably wouldn't see on a golf course is a baseball player, just because obviously that could really mess up your swing playing baseball and golf. But we did want to get into some MLB talk. Because, yeah, we've neglected uh, it a little bit. Like, we, we wanted to get We into talked it about bit. it here and there. We talked about La Russa a little bit yeah, and the like, no-hitters. But uh, To be fair to baseball, like, this is typical for the early season. Like, we all get excited about it the very beginning. Then everything else kind of takes more of a front seat because you get the postseasons in, in hockey. You get the postseason in basketball. You get the NFL draft. And then we slowly circle back to baseball. Um mm-hmm. So we kind of have, you know, except for the LaRusa thing, we've neglected it a little bit. But one of the dominating storylines has been just how to fix the game, what's wrong with the game. And Don Mattingly, did you see the Don Mattingly interview the other day where he came out, who's one of the most respected guys in baseball? And that's what spawned me to want to have this conversation today. He came out and said baseball's unwatchable. So for Don Mattingly to say that as one of the most respected guys in the game as a player and then as a manager um, – it made things very interesting. And, and a lot of people have been talking about it in sports radio the last couple of days. Um, but when a guy talks like that, you listen. And it got me thinking about how could the game be fixed? What are some things we can do? Um, so that leads us here. We've been neglecting a little bit. And the way I wanted to set this up, um, you're commissioner for a day, PJ. You're allowed to make three rule changes. And I limit it to three because – there's a lot of things about the game, little things here or there that we would like to change. But if you limit it to three, it forces you to pick the three most important things in your mind. So what would be the three things, commissioner, for a day that you change? All right. So number one would be the universal DH. And I know it's a big topic amongst people. And I get the strategy behind it in the NL. And it's really the way that you can kind of differentiate the AL to the NL. But I just think, you know, you want good baseball and pitchers hitting is just, is not a good idea. And I had a feeling that over, start, start that over. (laughs) I had a feeling this was coming because the fact you wanted to talk 50, it's episode 50. We got to have another surprise for, well, (laughs) I was going to say, because first off you sent me the email link to the zoom, which I knew was fishy. And then you wanted to, and then you wanted to talk baseball and then it was the 50th episode. So I had a feeling that we're all right. So we teed this up for him. You're commissioner for a day. You could change three things only because you, there's a lot of things, little things here or there we would like to change. So by picking the number three, you got to really hone in on the most important changes that you think you could make. And I led into this by saying um, we've kind of neglected baseball because like all the time, you know, you love it at the beginning in April, then it kind of takes a backseat to playoffs and other sports and the NFL draft. But then we circle back to it. And maybe it's a good time to circle back to it because Don Mattingly, I'm sure you saw the interview. He said the game was unwatchable. And when a guy like that and the sport talks, you listen. And it's been a big topic of conversation. So here we are. PJ, you started us off with. Yeah, I like the universal DH. I think that should be one personally. And I said, I get both sides of the argument. I get, you know, AL and NL. That's how people like to differentiate the two leagues and their strategy that goes behind it. But, you know, at a certain point, it's just it's bad baseball. You know, when you can get another good hitter in there in the DH, especially a lot of those NL teams that they got to keep a good player on the bench that they might hope can get a big pinch hit appearance. 
having the DH, I just, I think would really help baseball a lot. And uh, that's always for me going to be at the top of the rule changes is I hope they, they go to that one day. All right. Worm, you're so, up. Give us your first. I was going to start with my least favorite, but I'm actually going to give you my favorite rule change because it sort of ties into what PJ just said. And instead of uh, having the universal DH, I want to remove the DH and remove pitchers hitting. I want to have eight man lineups where only the position players are going through the order. Now I understand that a lot of people like sort of the, the uh, magic and ease of, you know, three outs, nine innings, nine hitters. It all sort of fits in together. Nice. That was going to be my rebuttal. But yep. if, we, if we were building this sport from scratch, knowing what we know now about how specialized pitching is, we would not ever have had pitchers hit. But if we were building it from scratch also, we wouldn't say we're going to have one guy who only does half the game. And I also think that not only does it make sense for my mind because I don't like the DH or, or pitchers hitting – but it also would help boost offense, which is a real problem right now because guys are going to be getting through the order more often. We all know about the sort of the, um, you know, uh, hit you take when you're a pitcher facing batters for a third time in a game. So that would be beneficial. The best hitters would just get more at bats. I want Mike Trout getting more at bats. I want Mookie Betts getting more at bats and relievers would have to cover more innings because pitchers would have to come out earlier because they're facing the sitters faster and then they wouldn't be able to, to throw as hard because they're having to cover more innings. So for a lot of reasons, I think it's actually kind of a brilliant idea. It's one of my favorite rules changes in any sport I've ever come up with. I know it will never happen, which is unfortunate, but if I, if I have, you know, ultimate commissioner power for a day, that's the first thing I'm doing. Unconventional, but I like it. And same for me, this, the one that I'm about to say is not necessarily my favorite, but again, it ties into the offense. Um, the shift. I'm not in favor of outlawing it entirely. Me personally, I see no problem with it because, hey, you have these tools at your advantage to give yourself an advantage and stop the other team from scoring. Use it. But I recognize that it is harming the game, and that was one thing in Mattingly's conversation where he thinks the shift will be gone entirely. I don't want to get rid of it entirely because you th I think back to the Mets era of like 06 around there. Carlos Delgado was the only player on the Mets back then. It just sticks out of my mind that ever got shifted. And nobody would ever complain about it. It would just happen when it did. He would lay down a bunt up the third base line every now and then. It was always a good time to see him chugging down the line. Um, so when it was limited in moderation, it was never an issue. And we're talking about pace of play. We're talking about stimulating offense. I want to limit teams to using five shifts per game. Five shifts allowed per game, similar to the mound visits they've done. Uh, institute a limit of five shifts per game. You use it strategically. Uh, maybe if Bryce Harper comes up to lead off an inning and there's nobody on base and it's only the third inning, maybe you say, all right, play it straight up. We'll see how it goes. But if it's the seventh inning and he comes up with, you know, in a specific situation where you're like, all right, we got to make sure we defend against this, go ahead and shift. So limit that to five and tie it in with that. Pitchers are only allowed to throw over to first base twice an inning. So two caps, two numerical caps that would help promote offense and help promote a uh, swifter time of game. Uh, because again, the, the, the shifts, you still have them. You don't take them out entirely. They're more strategic. And by not allowing them to throw over like four or five times when a speedy guy gets on first, you're going to stimulate steals and you're going to cut down on game time because Lord knows those at bats themselves can take like 10 minutes when a guy starts throwing over the first four or five times, stepping off this and that. So those I would tie together instituting numerical caps to, to help stimulate. those. So, so I have two questions on that one. I don't think the limiting pickoffs works because what's to stop a base dealer from getting like a lead halfway down the line 
if the pitcher's no longer allowed to throw over and, and keep them at first. So I agree that pickoffs are like, it's really frustrating and boring as a fan and tedious well, it, when, it when they throw take, over five times in a but, row. But, but it wouldn't take the pitcher, it wouldn't take the pitcher stepping off and getting the runner in a pickle out of the equation. If the catcher gives him a signal that the guy's way off first base, he steps off, he throws down a second, you're in a pickle. Um, so I don't think that runners would try to take advantage like that. It could, it could be an unintended consequence and you go back and retool it. But I, I think they would just be more inclined than to steal because they know the throwover isn't coming. Not necessarily they get halfway up there because you could get that throw, you know, to, to get them in a pickle. My other question is on the shift. I, I had limiting the shift as an honorable mention on, on my list. I'm curious how you define a shift because when I was scouting, we had two different types of shifts. We had the full Ted Williams and we had the partial Ted. And a full Ted was when there were three fielders on one side of the bag. And that is actually the shift I would like to eliminate entirely. But I don't think it makes sense to try and uh, to relegate partial Ted's because how do you define like oh the third baseman step so Marshall's, far off does that yes. count like so for, I, I, I don't know so I do I, have I would, criteria for that you pretty much so you're looking out from home plate you divide it into pretty much three triangles between third base and uh, third base and second base and you got a cone for the center fielder then you got a cone for the right fielder those three players have to in the outfield pretty much stay in their coat. And now on shifts, they typically don't ever come out of their range. It's more geared towards the infielders, but simply put, you got two guys on one side of the bag. You got two guys on the other side of the bag mandated. That's it. That'd yeah. Be the way. I, so I, I'm on board with it. If you want to play double play depth and, and pinch guys up the middle, if you want to guard the lines, like you could do all that movement still. Um, but you can't have, I mean, the way you say it also achieves the same end. Like, you can't have three guys on one side of the bag. Yeah. I don't actually love the uh, idea of abolishing or minimizing the shift. I actually think the reason the shift is so unpopular these days is because of the transition from people trying to hit home runs instead of trying to just hit the ball. So yeah. if you're a major league hitter and you're as good as all those guys are, I mean, if you really made an effort, if you really worked on it, you could hit the ball to left field if you're a left-handed hitter. You could hit the ball to right field if you're a right-handed hitter. I know it's a lot easier talking about it than it is to actually do, yeah, but I, I just think – How good the pitchers are nowadays, that, but I'm going to get to that in my favorite rule change. That's so the thing. Pitcher, pitchers that. are too good. It, yeah. it's, it's, like you said, PJ, it's easy to say. It is so hard to do when you're facing – 98 miles an hour from every reliever when you're facing wipeout sliders. It is, but yeah. don't you think the approach now of every kid who comes up in high school ball and college ball is to just try and swing that's, as hard as they can? That's definitely part but, of it. Yes, but the, but the core problem is, isn't is the, the shift for the reason that's happening. The core problem is pitching is so good, so you, you might as well, if you're going to hit the ball, hope it's a homer because that's your best way to score. I, I don't think the shift is – the shift might – contribute to that like two percent i think the yeah. by far the biggest issue for for the approach of batters is how good the pitching is exactly and i'm going to get to that i'm going to bottle this right there because i'm going to get to that with my favorite rule change and we could open that discussion but pj your second rule change my second rule change and this is one that's going after uh is building on a rule change that we've seen recently the extra inning rule i don't mind uh, a runner on second base but i think it should start in the 13th inning I think you allow for the 10th, 11th, and 12th inning to just play normal, three outs with nobody on base. That way you allow, hypothetically, each hitter in the lineup to get in that bat just playing straight up, and then you can put a runner on second base. Obviously, once you get to the postseason, you just play straight up. But for regular season, I think once you get to the 13th inning and extras, then you put the runner on second base. I don't like getting it to the 10th inning because when you're the home team, 
you should have a real advantage getting the last at bat. And I actually think that when you're a road team in the, in this new um, extra inning rules, I think the road team has the advantage because they get that at first bat with the runner in scoring position. If they play small ball, get that run across, then they know exactly what they need to do in that bottom half of the inning. Whereas if you play it straight up, you're just playing normal baseball and then one swing in the bottom half of the inning and you can win the game. So I think 13th inning is where they should start the runner on set. I, I, I like that, that reasoning, PJ, although I would say I would prefer just to not have it at all uh, because how often do games really go to the 13th inning anyways? I don't think it's a problem that like what four times a year we get a game that goes to, like the 18th inning. That's kind of fun and fluky when it happens. I don't see that as an issue. It's fair. It doesn't happen a lot, but it's, it's one of those things where I don't want it to happen at all. So like, I could get behind that rule change. So, All right, Warren, what you got? My, my second is, and this sort of ties into having replay now. So many times we will look at the most minute details to see when a guy has slid into a bag, did his foot maybe pop this off? This was my number one honorable mention. I, I, but what I want is once you have reached the bag, while you are still over the bag, like within reason, you can't jump over it or something. Yep. Once you have reached the bag, while you are over it, you are considered on the bag. The one exception I would say is your hand. If you're sliding where your hand is touching it, I don't think you can just go over the bag. I think because you can grip it and control your hand a lot easier. But if you're sliding feet first or another part of your body, I mean, that base is made of like a taut rubber. It is natural that you're going to bounce up just a little. To me, that is totally against the spirit of being safe and being on the bag. If you go past it, sure, obviously that's an issue. But if you are above it within reason, I don't think that should be considered out. Wholeheartedly agree. That was my number one honorable mention and the exact same verbiage too. If you're above it, you count except for the hand because that's different. And if you go past it entirely different story, you could be out because that, I mean, we see that happen a lot now too. Uh, Number two for me, mercy rule. Um, Now there's a definite caveat here. It's not just like little league where if it's a 10 run game in the fifth inning, because like we see leads evaporate. Uh, My caveat, it can only be after the seventh inning. Um, and the reasoning for that is you don't want to cheat the fans out of the ticket they paid for. And the reason the seventh inning is my number because of the fact that we're doing seven inning double headers, we clearly are okay with the fans only paying for seven innings. So you, you've shown now that you don't, just because it's traditionally nine innings, fans aren't going to always pay for nine. Maybe for, for a lot, a lot of teams are starting to do single admission double headers when it's a seven inning game. Um, but because some of them don't, you've clearly shown that paying for a seven-inning ticket is viable. So that's why the seventh is the number. Uh, and it's up to the losing team to concede or not in a game in which they're trailing by seven or more runs. So if it's after the seventh inning and a team is down seven or more runs, they have the right to concede. If they, if they want to save pitching, save everybody time, uh, because that, you know, the, whole, the whole thing with La Russa sparked this in my mind. Um, because you get teams now that to preserve their arms, they start throwing position players out there. And then you get into this whole thing where what's the proper etiquette for Fernando Tatis Jr. or Mike Trout going up against a guy who should not be pitching. Are they supposed to just take an out and hurt their batting average, hurt their statistics in a game that's so statistically driven? Um, you take that out of the equation. Uh, how often would this happen in a season? Who knows? So you're not really taking too many at bats, if any, out of these guys' hands over the course of a year. So seventh inning or later, so the fans at least get seven innings and seven or more runs. The losing team 
has the right to concede. Some teams, they won't even do it. If they're down seven runs, they'll say, you know what? I got some big boppers. I'm the New York Yankees. I'm fully healthy. I'm playing in a ballpark with two short porches. We could come back from seven innings. So they might not concede, but you give the losing team an option to concede down seven, seventh inning or later. I, it's interesting. Seven, I think, might be a little too small. Uh, I, I would maybe go up to 10. I agree with the mercy rule, though, and I like your reasoning. I just don't know if seven is a big enough number. That, that's fair. I mean, the number could be toyed with. But again, it's because it's up to the losing team, if they're down seven, maybe they continue. If they're down 10, maybe they right. concede. So you just I, leave it up to them. I don't hate it. My seven, eight run games where p- teams will still throw a position player because they're like, screw it. It's Tuesday. I'm not screwing my arms for the rest of the week. Just we're down seven. Forget it. Our odds are slim. Well, well, that's sort of my problem is the idea that like maybe this wouldn't happen in the seventh, but let's say in the eighth inning. So you're one, you already have fewer outs to work with at this point. If you're down, let's say the limit is, is we call it eight. And if you're down seven, I could see a team being like, hey, like throw the ball away, you know, quote unquote, and let this last run score so we can just call it a day. And, and I don't like the idea of teams like purposefully allowing runs. Yeah, to I mean, I, I don't think they would. It's possible. I don't know that teams would purposely tank it. I think once you get that far in the game, you realize you'll give it your last shot. And then if not, you know, you, you go ahead and end it. But that was just something because position players pitching as fun as it is, like it's it creates issues and. You know, I'd, I'd rather just see it taken out of the equation because their hearts are not in it at that stage. And, mm-hmm. you know, we see line drives back at the pitcher way too often in the game. And the last thing you want is like you bring in, you know, Anthony Rizzo to pitch just because you need an arm to get through it. And because he's throwing a meatball up there, he gets a 99 mile an hour line drive back at his forehead, you know, and he's not used yeah. to being on the mound, that sort of thing. So just anytime you can take something like that out of the equation and just speed things along, preserve arms, go for it. My first one, and I'm interested to see what you guys think of this. I actually think that each team per game should be allowed one challenge of the strike zone. And it can only be on a uh, either, I mean, it really can be used any time in the count. But I think too often in baseball, being an umpire is really, really hard. And especially at the major league level. And nowadays with technology and everything we have, every game and every broadcast has the K zone and the strike zone, and you can tell what's a strike and what's a ball. And just, I think from a pitcher's perspective and a batter's perspective, and from a manager's perspective too, and when they want to use that, do you use that in a bases loaded jam in the third inning when you know it's going to be a strikeout? Or do you use it in, or do you save it until the seventh or eighth inning? But I think, you know, too many times in baseball, pitcher thinks they've thrown strike three, it's not called, and then we see a home run or we see a double. It happens every game all the time. So I think one challenge per game, the strategy behind it used, and because baseball is a game that's based off of it's you're supposed to fail in baseball. And umpires are the same way. They're going to make mistakes, especially if Angel Hernandez is your umpire. God bless you. I mean, if, so if I Hernandez think you, is your umpire, you get two challenges. That, that might be. Per inning, per inning. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I like the challenge. I think one per game, if you win it, then you get another one. But uh, I don't think it would slow pace of play down too much. You obviously have the K zone right there. You can kind of tell whether it's a strike or a ball. You move on and right. you see what happens. My, my so, first issue with that is – uh, where you said if you if you win it you get another um, because teams will challenge at least one per inning because of the fact that we have K zone and stuff this is not an arbitrary thing sometimes like it is in the NFL what is a catch what is it a catch it's black and white was it right. a strike was it not a strike 
So I think you end up unintentionally slowing down pace of play because with that in mind, every team will 100% know if it was or wasn't a strike. And if you get it right and keep it until you get it wrong, teams will challenge one per No, no, no. You get two. Get right. You get like two max. Like if you win it. Then oh, you get, okay. Then you gotcha. Get I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. The, way you, the way you phrased that, I thought you could like yeah, get, yeah. just continue. No, 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 no. Yeah, my, yeah. Teams will challenge one per inning. My only issue with this, and I did consider like the idea of like robot umps or something like that, because I do think proper enforcement of the strike zone is one of the issues that's hurting offense in baseball. But my, my issue is I'm just not totally convinced the technology is there to get it right every time. And this was five years ago. So like, take it for what it is. Technology's probably improved since then. But in 2016, again, when I was scouting, you know, we would have... Wait, you were a scout? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Shockingly. I don't know why I've never mentioned it before. So, so we had, you know, there was technology that would show after every pitch where it thought the ball was. And almost every time we would have to adjust it based on our eyesight and say, it's clearly not there. It was usually close, but if you're talking about a pitch that is, I mean, if, if Angel Hernandez calls a ball, that's clearly right down the, the, the middle of the zone. Like obviously that's easy to fix with a challenge, but if it's already close enough that it like could have gone either way, I don't know that I trust technology to be right enough to make this worthwhile. But if you can convince me that the technology is there, then I would be on board with it. Sure. So right. you, I know you said you, you gave your favorite already. So I guess what's your third one? Yeah. So th this is my third one. Um, I, I did have a bunch of other honorable mentions. I will very quickly run through because there's too many to give them uh, too much time. Um, I, I toyed with the uh, eliminating the drop third strike rule, mostly because I'm bitter about John, John Means. Means not <laughs> a perfect game. Yeah. Um, it's also a silly rule. I, I, I thought about the idea of moving the mound back. I think that's probably too drastic right now, but I'm not opposed to it down the line. If, if the pitching being too far ahead of the hitting remains an issue. Um, I also had some uh, rules that weren't really about gameplay, but just more if I was the commissioner stuff like I would allow official scores to decide which pitcher is deserving of the win on any given day rather than just the last one who happened to be on the mound. Um, I would say if you hit a home run, don't run the bases. Let's let's if you want to save time, why do we need to watch you jog for 30 seconds? Um, I would eliminate blackout restrictions, which frankly would be my number one, like gameplay or non-game play. If you just want to help grow the game, stop letting people not watch their favorite teams. It's, it's absurd. Um, I would change service time rules to not incentivize teams to keep their best players in the minor leagues for financial reasons. I would say replay needs to be confirmed in 60 seconds or less. If you can't decide in a minute, then it's clearly not, not uh, you know, obvious enough. And also I would say if you are determined that you threw a ball at somebody on purpose for any sort of unwritten rule or whatever, you miss the rest of the season. I, I could not be less interested in any possible reason you have to try and hit somebody with a, a weapon, which is really what it is. Uh, it is insane. It, it, if the league determines you did this intentionally out for the year, automatic, no questions about it. I, I want to see that gone, but harsh, but I don't disagree. So, but the actual one that I went with is again, trying to get offense up a bit. Um, I considered saying that you needed to get four strikes to strike out instead of three, but I think that adds too much stress on the pitch. That's even more pitches being thrown. Yeah. So instead I took down the walk. I said three ball walks. And I, and I know some people might think, well, worm, one of the big problems in baseball is not enough balls in play. So won't this incentivize batters to take more pitches? And I say maybe, but what it also will do is incentivize the pitcher to not toy around so much with the, the corners of the strike zone because he doesn't want to walk, you know, four guys in an inning or whatever. So you're going to get more pitches to hit because the pitcher is afraid that he's, he's, his walks are going to go through the roof. 
And it doesn't necessarily add more pitches on the pitcher's arm because more balls in play should be more outs, quicker innings. Sometimes there'll be rallies and stuff, which is what we want. We want to see balls in play. Um, but I, I think, again, that's one that I don't think would ever happen. Obviously, some of the ones we've mentioned, I could see the shift being limited down the line. You know, I could see some of these replay rules being instituted. I don't ever see this happening, but three, three ball walks would be my third choice. Don't think it would ever happen. I'd be curious to see which way it goes, if there'd be more walks or if there'd be more pitches to hit. That'd be very interesting. Um, now, the reason before I said to, to put a lid on the conversation we were having about how much of the offensive issues are really attributed to the shift in this and that, I think it's minimal. I think it is truly the fact that pitchers have just surpassed hitting in a way that um, renders offense to what we've seen, home run or strikeout. Uh, the stat I saw last week, and I'm sure this early in the season, the numbers have changed very quickly. But as of last week, we were on pace for the most strikeouts. We were on pace for the seventh most home runs ever. But it would have ranked 90th in runs scored in a season, which is just <laughs> mind-blowing. Seventh wow. On pace for seventh homers, on pace for 90th in runs scored. That's just astonishing. Um, so it truly is home runner strikeout. Uh, I think everything stems from the mound. And we, we ha- it's, it's, it's one thing where we have precedent in this when they lowered the mound. We've seen what that did for the game. It stimulated offense. It worked out. Pitchers that adapted. And now whatever it is, 50 years later, it's caught up again. Um, you can't lower it. I mean, I think we've, we've, you lower it anymore. You're pitching off flat ground. Under the ground. Um, yeah. So <laughs> now, now I can't attach a number to it because I'm not smart enough, but all these MIT guys who have gotten involved in teams and have engineered their analytics to help give them the edge with shifts and with spin rate and this and that, put them in a room, figure out what the distance is and move the mound back that distance. If it's, if they mathematically determine that that is, uh, move it back 10 inches and it gives the, hitters X amount more reaction time to stimulate offense, whatever the case may be. I think everything stems from the pitching becoming too dominant. It's fun to see, but unfortunately it's not good for the ratings. And that's at the end of the day, what's going to drive everything. Um, But it's a weird tightrope act in baseball where you want to save the game. You want to stimulate offense, but it's such a game rooted in history where you don't want to toy with the rules too much and become too gimmicky to achieve those ends. And doing this, I think would be, a very satisfactory option for all people. The old school that doesn't want things changed will accept it and say, Hey, look, we did it once. We've done it once before. It's not without precedent. Let's see if it works again. The new school that wants to see all that offense. Well, it'll probably have that end to it as well because pitchers will become more hittable by bringing it back a little bit. I mean, you got DeGrom who's effortlessly throwing one Oh two. I mean, it, a cu- I remember, maybe a decade ago, maybe 15 years ago. I'm, I don't know exactly how far, but remember Joel Zumaya? He came in yeah. throwing like 102, and that was a novelty. Now, if you're not throwing 100, you're not in the league. So it's, it's become too commonplace. It's become to the point where pitchers have just simply overpowered the hitters. And I think whatever the number is, again, I don't know. I'm not that smart. Figure it out. Move it back that much. And I think everything else we've talked about plays itself out because you're going to get – PJ, what you were talking about, about it being easy to just try hitting the ball the other way, I don't think it is because pitchers are too dominant. Move it back, and maybe guys can hit the other way. That's going to decrease shift. It's going to increase offense. I think everything is solved by moving the mound back whatever the appropriate distance is. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure that moving the mound back is the right solution, but what I am 100% sure of is that 
whatever changes you enact to try and solve this issue of pitching being too far ahead, it has to be a rule change that affects the pitchers because pitching is, is the proactive side of baseball. It's the only sport where defense starts with the ball and the hitters are reactionary. At a certain point, if the pitching is good enough, there is not something a hitter, there's not anything a hitter can do. I mean, it's the old adage, good pitching beats good hitting. Like mm-hmm. it, it really is true. If the pitchers are good enough, then, then the hitters have no choice but to swing for the fences because they're probably not scoring runs in that inning if they don't hit a homer. And look, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I would try the mound thing first before anything else. It's, you know, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, even though Keyshawn Johnson one day actually showed people you can like two weeks ago on his morning <laughs> radio show, which I was just mind blown by it. Um, but if, if you start doing all these things with the shift and, and all these other rules, three ball walk and whatnot, there's really no coming back from it. But if you do something which has been done historically already, which is alter the mound and it doesn't work, I think people would be fine with then just moving it back and trying something else, but try that first. If it doesn't work, then go through all the gimmicky stuff, but go with that organic change that we've seen before, before anything else. That's my number one. Let me throw one more at you guys. I'm interested to see what you think of this. Um, And I would say I wouldn't want to see this for the whole season, but maybe like five days or a week. What do you think of quick counts? You have a random generated system that you flash on the big screen and each batter gets anywhere from an 0-2 count to a 3-0 count as soon as you step in the box. The okay, only really problem – like that, that sounds like is, you, How did you come up with like this? a great game mode for MLB The Show, but not That's exactly real. how I came up with it was MLB The Show. <laughs> the only – the real, real only problem is that starting pitchers, because they could have like 0-2 counts, I mean, theoretically, the entire game, they could go 15 innings – but I just think if you want to make the game fun, if you want to speed it up, you know, for like five games, it, it could be interesting. I will, I will veto that. <laughs> I, did, I, I did consider, you know, I play a lot of slow pitch softball. I did consider softball rules, like start with a one, one count or something. But again, I just think that, especially if it's still four, four balls for a walk and three strikes for an out. If you're starting with a one, one count, that's way too much of an advantage for the pitchers. Again, I, I tell you what, I wouldn't like that rule the quick count rule pj in any sort of game that mattered i would kind of love it in the all-star game just as like a fun like it doesn't (laughs) really matter anyways how how fun would it be to to, like right as you go up it's some random generator it's like mike trout gets oh two and he's just laughing he's like oh come on man like that's actually a good idea yeah that really is i'm I'm bored with that in that setting i do like that all right maybe maybe we're on to something i don't know all right real quick before i get out of here i just have to point out that Joe's fantasy team had like a lot of afternoon players today. So he's already scored 38.2 points today. And I have scored zero today in our head to head matchup. And I'm still winning. So hey, I, fine, I, fine, fine. He, you want to, let me, let me just go ahead and point this out then. Uh, JT Real Muto, Pete Alonzo, Mike Trout, Giancarlo Stanton, all on my IL in their place. I am starting Fletcher. I am starting Stallings. I am starting Choi. And I don't even remember who the last insert was in my lineup. Um, oh, Michael Franco. That is who I'm starting instead of those four guys. So meet me later in the season when those guys are back. Some, okay, some teams, some owners like to do this thing called building depth. My depth is all hurt too. <laughs> we, we have a next, we have a next man cut. up mentality here. Yeah, I, had I, had to, I, hardly even I had to cut three players on the IL 
to make room for those three players now on the I.L. That, that sounds like a problem every owner has to deal with. And, and <laughs> until you find a way to do so, like you're going to be making more excuses than you, than you do victory. Hey, you know what? Well, I think you've overstayed your welcome. We always say 15 <laughs> minutes and we end up going a half an hour. So on that note, I'm going to boot you from this. But thank you for hopping on. You always listen to our episodes. You're always uh, kind enough to come on as a surprise guest or official guest in your Ravens capacity. On, on rare occasions, an official guest. I appreciate you guys having me again. And congrats on 50 episodes. Appreciate it. You were kind of suspicious as soon as he popped out. I mean, you, you knew it was coming. I, I, I left I too many breadcrumbs where you were probably thinking something was up. Uh, I did want to talk baseball, whether or not we got Worm as a surprise, because I, I did want to get into that topic. It was a big discussion this week on a lot of shows. Um, but that was just the added benefit of, of, the, of the surprise there, having Worm involved, too. Because you knew, you knew that even though I set the parameters of pick three rules, he would have a list of ten other rules he would change. So I knew that was coming as well. <laughs> it's a good thing Worm doesn't do horse racing because when the handicappers give out the pick three, the pick four, when would, Worm would give out the pick ten, the pick twelve. It's great seeing him, though, uh, on the 50th episode. Yeah, new haircut, too. It looks like the European soccer player. We gave him some, some crap for that. But, uh, sure does. Uh, he got the blue check mark next to his name since the last time we had him on as well. So, so big things for Worm. New haircut, blue check mark on Twitter. Uh, good for good for Worm. He's doing well. <laughs> All right, so let's talk a little NHL. Um, Joe, the Washington Capitals are not going to the Stanley Cup final. I tried to tell you that you were just they're not. The uh, pandemic has put things back in their proper place, and DC Sports and the Capitals are once again just. Joe, honestly, I thought about this a lot, and I think the Caps need to just blow it up. You keep Ovechkin because you owe him that, and he's the face of your franchise. You might never get a player as good as him ever again. But if you take 2018 away, the thing that I just keep going back to, they've obviously never been past the second round other than 2018, but it's the fact that even when they were in their prime, I look at Colorado and what they did against St. Louis and just how that series was just easy. They sweep them. And you look at Pittsburgh in their heyday and Boston and Tampa. They just had easy series. In the Ovechkin era, the Caps have never swept a team, ever. They've never swept them. They've only once won a game in five series that wasn't the 2018 year. Once. Every series has gone to six or seven games. I would say 17 of 17 of their last 22 series have gone six games or more. So to me, look, you you won your Stanley cup and thank God. I'm so glad over you Backstrom got one, but they're getting older and older every year. You're clearly, you know, I think Laviolette's a good coach, but you had trots there. You lost him. You're not getting one better. And, uh, I mean, the Caps have proven that they can obviously build a team through the draft. You have some nice pieces sprinkling in. I think you need to ship Kuzi off to Seattle. That should not even be remotely a discussion between him and Oshie. Um, But that's, you know, the Caps, they can keep going down this road where they do well in the regular season and they have first-round exits or second-round exit at best. But I just don't think this core group is going to win the Stanley Cup. The core group as a whole, if we're talking – Oshi, Carlson, Kuzi, Ovi, Backy, all these guys, no. But if you strip it down to just the core three of Ovi, Backy, and Carlson, and figure out the rest, I think you give it one more run. 
because you get Laviolette then in his second year um, and, and a normal full 82 game season spread out from October to April. You give it one go at that. They need speed. They need youth. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Oshi. You mentioned Kuzi. I think you ship both of them to Seattle. I think you leave Oshi unprotected. Um, Seattle's going to want him as their captain in all likelihood. Right. You get that money that he's paid, which is a lot off the books. You then go ahead, work out a separate trade, get Kuzi out there and, and get something back in return. Young, fast guy. Um, so that's going to help you out a lot monetarily. It's going to help you out to fill a need. But Ovi clearly has more left in the tank. He's still scoring like crazy. Yeah, keep Backy led the team in points, especially with the assists. Carlson still in his prime. Those three are guys you can hang your hats on. You fill in the rest. You go ahead and, and you get some youth. You get some speed. You give it one more go. If they don't make it past the first or second round, second round's tougher because um, going back to the normal format next year, second round's tough because, you, you know, it, it's not easy to make a conference final, and that's what it's you'd be asking enough. them to do. So if, if there's another first-round exit or if they make it to the second round and then just get blitzed and losing four or five, blow it up by all means. But I think you give it one more go because I think it's an easier fix than is realized just because of how much money could come off the books with just those couple of guys. And because they do have young guys right now in the minors who are ready to step up and play roles like uh, Conor McMichael and um, guy whose name always is mispronounced by me. um, Fair Fair Harvey. (laughs) I'm not going to say it, but he's a young defenseman who's going to be really good. He's going to be really good. He's a young defenseman. I'm uh, going to butcher it. Hockey names are tough. We know that. And it's not until I start hearing them on a regular basis that I get them down. Igor Shostakin. Yeah, it's not one that I've heard <laughs> on a regular basis yet. So apologies. We'll get there next year. I think he'll be called up. But I, I respect his game. He's going to be really good. So you have pieces already in the organization. There's enough for one more run. Um, sad to see it end the way it did. Uh, that game, that series just ended. You knew it was done probably uh, after, I knew after it the was mistake over... in game three. Well, when yeah. played that well. That's just demoralizing. The actually it was that game, but it was in the third period. The Caps hit the post twice in the third period. Yeah. Hockey is you can tell which team gets the breaks and who responds. That Penguins Islanders series, it seemed like every single time the Penguins scored a goal and you were thinking, here they go, they're go-, the Islanders would answer right. every time. That, that is the team right there. That's it. That is um, uh, the main Pittsburgh's team of the first round. The main yeah. team of the first round. Easy series. The only one that is currently going to a seventh is Golden Knights Wild. We might get a seventh game in Carolina, Nashville. I don't think we will um, by the time this is released. So we'll see, but. I think if uh, I think Carolina has to win tonight, I actually think if Nashville wins tonight, I actually think they're going to win game seven. If there's a game seven in that building with the Caniacs, I don't think the Canes lose. The Canes have dominated this series in terms of all the advanced metrics, expected goals, and all that stuff. Um, I think they come through. It's, it's a miracle in my mind that the Predators have even hung on this long based on the way the games have gone. It's just UC Soros who's stolen games, which is how it goes in hockey. I mean, that's, that's not. They've won two double overtime games. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying though. The Canes have been so dominant and this, honestly, the series could have just as easily been a sweep, but here it has gone six games and just knowing playoff hockey, if it gets to a seven. team is that dominant as they've been usually, that team wins. The Penguins, like you said, there were moments when they were on the cusp of looking dominant, but they never actually did get to that level. And that's why the Islanders came through and won. 
the Canes have truly been utterly dominant in that series. So I don't, that series could, like you said, two double overtime games, that series could just as easily have been a sweep as it is now in game six. Um, but outside of that, we saw a stunning sweep of Edmonton. That is I actually just, had win, Winnipeg winning. I didn't have Winnipeg, sweeping, yeah, but Winnipeg I had them winning. winning. That's fun. <laughs> I was on the fence about that series. Did not have a sweep. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, it, it was amazing seeing handshakes at the end of the Lightning Panther series after they wanted to shank each other with their skates for six Man, days. all Florida series lived up to the hype. That Absolutely. was fantastic. Uh, like you said, the Avalanche ran through. Yeah. Golden Knights taken to seven has been the surprise for me. Um, Vegas just the, can't score anymore. Yeah, it's the, wild, the last couple of years been their MO. The Wild are a gritty team. They're yeah. really tough, uh, especially at home, and they were really solid all year. I, was, I didn't think they would go toe-to-toe here. And I hope that Vegas wins game seven. Sorry to Minnesota, because similar to us wanting L.A., L.A. in basketball, we've wanted to see Avalanche Golden Knights in the playoffs, and I really want it. Um, would they get that next round if they win? Would be, yep, yep, because the, the way the format Canadian is this year, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's divisional for the first two rounds, and then you go to a reseed of the final four. So that will be the next round, Avalanche Golden Knights. Winnipeg awaits the winner of the Maple Leafs Canadian series, which is looking like Toronto. Um, hope all is well with John Tavares after that scary injury, but he was already skating on the ice today in morning skate. So that's a good sign. Tampa awaits the winner of Carolina and Nashville. I would love to see that Carolina Tampa series. And then we get Boston and the Islanders. That is going to be a very tough physical. I'm series. not touching any Boston, New York game with a 10 nope. foot pole. Those that, games that could go. That series that, is probably going anyway. seven. If there's could any go either action way. I want on that series, it's whatever the odds are for that series to go seven games. Not on the winner, just on it going seven games. If I had to make a pick, I would pick the Islanders just because Trotz has really dominated Sully, the Penguins coach, and he's dominated the Bruins and Bruce Cassidy throughout his career. So that trend holds up. I would lean the Islanders. <laughs> But it's tough that. to it's tough to bet against Boston in the playoffs. They are, they're a good team. Some of their inexperience on the blue line could come back to bite them, but I'll go with the Islanders as well. And I referenced it before. I want Vegas against Colorado because I don't want it to be a situation. That'd be a good no series. Um, we might not again have LALA in the NBA because the Clippers are down 0-2 against the Mavericks, and that has been stunning. The, of the first round. Not going to run through the bracket for the NBA like we just did for the NHL because obviously the NHL further along in the postseason. Uh, just a couple of games into the series so far in the NBA. And that's the big takeaway. Um, the Mavericks Here's my big... are taking it and shoving it back at the Clippers for tanking to get them on purpose. And it's interesting to see. They are. My big, bold prediction is that I think the Clippers are going to pull a Capitals from 2018. I think they're going to get down 0-2 at home. I think they're going to win the next four against Dallas. And I think they're going to go en route to win the NBA Finals. That's my big prediction. win it all. I don't know. I have the bucks over them in the finals and I'll stick with that. Um, but I could see them coming back, but it's just, I mean, it, I tell you what, if, if they don't make it past this series, they're going to blow it up. And Steve Bomber is going to like, Steve Bomber is going to look like a fool. Um, they don't have a first round minutes. draft pick until 2027. Yeah, they're all they, in. <laughs> they have nothing. No. Now you could, you could regather some of that capital by making some trades. Um, Problem is Kawhi is going to opt out, so you're not getting anything He's back gone. from Kawhi. Yep, bye. If you, you could start pulling an Oklahoma City Thunder and just start selling everybody for whatever you could get and try to replenish and rebuild and lure a free agent the following year. Um, I don't know, but uh, if, if they don't come through, Kawhi is probably getting out of there, and it's going to be a really interesting summer. But I do think they do get through. Um, but just, just really interesting to see this whole thing about them 
tanking to get into that spot and now having to face the music it, it's it's really careful what you wish for yeah it's it's really a, a warning to anybody else in the future who decides to do that um the other two things that stuck out to me from the first round so far um brooklyn and the bucks utterly dominant and that's going to be a fantastic series fantastic series yeah, Brooklyn's the real deal. The Bucks. See, I'm interested. I'm more interested to see if we get the if we get the Bucks team from Game One or Game Two. The Bucks just couldn't miss in Game Two. Game One went to overtime. The Heat could have won that one. Game Two, the Bucks couldn't miss. Miami couldn't buy a shot. So Game Three, obviously with the Heat season on the line, you're going to learn a lot about tonight. But right. the Heat just aren't as good as they were last year. They lost Crowder. They lost Olynyk. They got Trevor Ariza starting now. They're just not as good yeah, as And the were. other thing to draw a parallel here reminds me of last year when the Lightning won in five overtimes against Columbus and then smoked them the rest of the series. Last year, the Heat beat the Bucks in the series, similar to how Columbus beat the Lightning the season prior in their series. Um, and then after a really tough game one that went to overtime, then it was a steamroll the rest of the way. I think it's sweet. I think it's four nothing bucks. And I said that before, that was my bold prediction last week. You thought that would be a tough series. You could see the heat coming through, but I think you picked the bucks. I um, did. I said, this is my bold prediction of the first round. I think they right the wrongs of last year. This team has no holes anymore, but with the additions of holiday and, and, and Tucker uh, and Giannis has stepped his game up again. They're a complete team. I thought they would steamroll the heat. I think they go on to complete the sweep and I think they beat the nets in seven. I think this is the Bucks' year, and it was interesting to see them the first couple of games kind of get over that mental hurdle of the Heat in game one and then just take it and run with it in game two. So those are my three big takeaways from the first round so far. I'm still not even halfway through the first round in the NBA. but The last two things I'll add are I'm sad that Chris Paul got hurt because that Lakers-Sun series would be really, really good if he was healthy. And then the last thing, there is not a better – postseason atmosphere in any sport than there is at Madison Square Garden when the Knicks are playing basketball and it's unbelievable and for all the people who say like you know Madison Square Garden could lure free agents the building the building the building I don't buy that it is awesome but it's not the building itself that sells people it's the atmosphere in it when the team is good so now that the Knicks are good right again that's what's going to lure people to the garden. It's not the, the building's not magical. It's not going to wrap its tentacles around a free agent and bring them in, but it's the, it's the chicken or the egg thing. Do people go to the Knicks to play at the garden because the garden's famous or is the garden famous because of the crowd and the crowd is only good when they're winning like that. So they're winning again. Atmosphere is phenomenal. They're going to be a player for, for another big name in free Man, agency. That it's MSG, it is so it's good to see that. Now place minus the guy hitting on Trey Young, who is rightfully banned. There was a line that should not have been crossed, and that was it. But outside of that one guy, the other 14,999, kudos to them. Great atmosphere. Great atmosphere. And you combine New York with their following and the Hawks and their home crowds, that could be like 70% New York crowd uh, in their next game in Atlanta. So we'll see. Yeah, Jazz Grizzlies, a little surprised that the Grizz took game one. Mitchell was out, but – John Moran is so good. Oh, my yeah, I had, God. I had the Grizzlies in game one there just because uh, longer layoff for the Jazz. Haven't really had to play any important basketball in a while. But I would have hoped the Wizards would do. Games. That was their game to take. They were yep. close for a little bit, but yep. they just couldn't win it. Now they're done. It's over.
All right, right, Joe. Trivia time. Episode 50 trivia. Yeah. So, you know, because I had a feeling that Warren would be on and you wanted to talk baseball, I gave you a baseball question. I have a baseball question for you, too. Oh, wow. So I wanted to see how I wanted to see how well you're paying attention to the season. Okay. So your question is in 90 seconds, can you give me the five teams in the MLB that have 30 or more wins right now? Five teams, 30 or more wins. Go ahead. Los Angeles Dodgers. That is one. San Diego Padres. That is two. Chicago Cubs. No, not the Cubs. I think they have 28, I believe. Hmm. One strike. Chicago White Sox are there. They are not. I think they have 28 or 29. There are a couple with 28 or 29. Two strikes. All right. right. Um, I don't think the Yankees are there. The Yankees are in the 20s, especially after losing the Blue Jays in a doubleheader today. The Mets are not there. Um, minute left. So I've gotten through two of them. All right. Yep. Two of them right. Three left. Um, are no, it's not the Blue Jays. It's not, oh, is there are the Red Sox there? They're in first place. They are. The Red Sox have 30 wins. Yep. That's three. Um, 30 seconds left. Hmm. Out west. Do the Astros have 30 wins? They do not. No. All right. Three strikes. Third strike. So you got the Padres. They have 32 wins. They're tied for the most wins in baseball with the Rays. Tampa Bay is hot. Oh, they're right on like now. a 12-game winning streak. You're right. They, Tampa You're Bay right. is hot. And then there are three tied with 30 wins. The Red Sox, the Dodgers, and the San Francisco Giants. The Giants are the quietest team in there. The oh, Giants. my goodness. Kevin Gosman <laughs> might win NL MVP because, of course, he was an Oriole, and now he's lighting it up. But, yeah, crazy. Three NL West teams with 30 more wins, and then the two AL East teams lead the way. All right, good question. Uh, clearly, 50 episodes is too much for us. Um, I also went with one to see how well you're paying attention. Uh <laughs> Who are the currently the five leading home run total guys? All right, we got Vladdy. Vladdy number one with sixteen. Uh, I think Shohei is up there. Shohei number three with fifteen. There are ties for first and third, and then one person alone in fifth place. You're ten seconds into it, and you got two already. Three more. Dang, those are my two layups. Now I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, is there a Yankee? I know. Judge has played has like twenty five against the Orioles, but uh, let's see. Acuna had a bunch. I'll go Acuna. He had a bunch. Acuna also tied for third with fifteen. So you okay. got three guys, two more to go, and you are thirty five seconds into it. Let's see. Nobody on Tampa. Ooh, Boston. JD's having a good year. Bogarts. Devers. Minute or forty five seconds to go. Excuse me. Dodgers. I'll go JD Martinez. Eddie Martinez is not. He is tied for 12th with 12 homers. Mercedes has a bunch of White Sox. Um, 30 seconds. Two more. You only got one strike. I'll go Castellanos. Castellanos is not. Castellanos also tied for 12th with 12 homers. As is Aaron (laughs) Judge, who you also mentioned, tied for 12th with 12 homers. (laughs) I mean, maybe I don't think Mercedes has that many. 15 uh, seconds. Yeah. Crap. Uh, I'll go Mercedes, but I don't think it's him. It is not. Actually, I'm not sure how many he has. He's not. I got to scroll a little bit to get to him. 
and I still didn't see his name. Um, but the two you missed, uh, you mentioned the Red Sox. Wrong Red Sox. Robert Devers has 14 homers. And then similar to the San Francisco Giants in your question, my under-the-radar one that you probably weren't going to get. Stremski? Adelise Garcia of the Texas Rangers with 16 home runs and 41 Jesus. RBI. Jesus. Yeah, you're right. I've never so, gone that, that one. Was, that was the one. Um, all right. Well, what's the final tally after 50 episodes? You're up 20 to 18. 20 to 18. You know what? We said we wanted to get to a point where it was a good like MLB average. And I'll take 20 divided by 50 for a 400 average. Ted Williams over here. There you go. That's pretty good. <laughs> There'll be a lot of teams that would take you leading off. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, PJ, <laughs> it's been awesome. 50 episodes, one year. Like I said at the beginning, it has evolved from pretty much just taking a captive audience of guests who couldn't say no to us because they weren't doing anything to us doing what we wanted, which was turn this into a, an outlet to give our takes. And when we have guests, great. If not, we got us to, to do our thing. So it's been great. Uh, hope the listeners and viewers on YouTube have enjoyed it. And here's to 50 more. 50 more. Thanks again to Worm for joining us. Great having him on. And uh, hopefully we get uh, we get a guest next week to kick off the next 50. Yeah, and hopefully the next 50 doesn't involve a pandemic where, again, uh, the guests are forced to come on because there's nothing to do. That we would be ideal. That yeah. Hopefully that doesn't happen in the next 50. But for PJ Glasser, I'm Joe Malfa. Thanks for tuning in. One-year anniversary, 50th episode, plenty more to come.